Podcasting from Hartford, you're listening to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast, your place for all things Connecticut sports. And here is your host, Jared Cutler. From throwing popcorn and water bottles at players to running onto the court, we've seen some bad behaviors from fans of late. Outside of those incidents, there's actually a lot of good that comes from being a sports fan, including health, psychological benefits, and more. Larry Olmsted, author of Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding, joins the podcast to talk about all the benefits that come from being a sports fan. If you're like me, by the time you're done listening to this episode, you'll feel a lot less guilty about those afternoons spent on the couch watching your team play. And now to my conversation with author Larry Olmsted. All right, so joining me today, we, we've got author of Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. Love the book. Larry, thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to be with you. So Larry, I've got to start with this question, and it's kind of the obvious one. What got you interested in in doing a full book on fans as the topic of the book there? Well, my sort of shtick as a journalist has always been to uh, find stories that hide in plain sight. So I write about topics that everybody knows about, but with sort of a new twist. You know, my last book was about food and everybody knows about food, but I found a, you know, an angle that hadn't really been done. And it's the same with sports. There are literally thousands of books have been written on sports over this, over the decades. And all of them are about athletes, teams, coaches, um, you know, lessons learned, uh, none of them about fans and, and in spectator sports, spectators make up like 99.99% of the equation. So I thought it was time to give them their due. As you started to dive into this topic a bit more, I'm sure you came into it with some preconceived notions about what you might find as you were looking into fans. Was there anything that surprised you as you started to dive into the research here? Uh, Yeah, everything. (laughs) Um, (laughs) To be honest, I actually came to it from the opposite point of view. Um, I started my research with the suspicion that maybe being a sports fan was not a good thing for us. Um, And... I was really surprised by the data and I did a 180 um, on that. And, you know, especially these days, you know, it's become so hard to get anyone to change their mind about anything, you know, regardless of evidence. So I look at the fact that I sort of, you know, set out to see whether fandom was bad and became a huge fan of fandom as, you know, evidence of how compelling the data is. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, it was a lot, a lot of different things, um, you know, to me, the biggest, there's so many surprises, but, but my sort of favorite uh, was the scope of the, the community healing post-traumatic power of sports. I knew about 9-11. I grew up in Queens. I went to Mets games. Uh, I remember my Piazza. I worked at the World Trade Center in high school. So like that moment was pretty poignant to me, but I thought it was an anomaly. I didn't realize that that story plays out over and over again after natural disasters, man-made disasters, Boston Marathon bombing, most Mm -hmm. recently the Las Vegas uh, massacre shooting. So that really, the stories of people basically lives being healed by sports in a fundamental way was was the most surprising and moving to me. We can dive into that a little more because I had that on my list of what I wanted to talk about. And I think it's particularly relevant in today's times with what we've been going through for the past year plus here with the COVID pandemic. And I know you you touch on it a bit in the book, but what do you see in terms of the the benefits of sports and, and now fans, you know, really finally being able to turn back 
two stadiums and arenas in, in fuller capacity. What impact do you think that has on, you know, the nation as we come back from this pandemic and start to heal, you know, throughout our different communities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for a couple of different reasons. I mean, the first phase was sort of just the return of live sports to TV right. during the pandemic. You know, it was the lo- longest break that's ever happened in this country or in the world, really, without sports at the same time that people had nothing to do and were stuck at home. So, you know, just coming back as a form of entertainment was valuable because it really distracted people from the stress. And a lot of the sports psychologists I talked to said, you know, that's one of the important healing powers, you know, of anything during a traumatic time is just distraction from your worries. Right. But longer term, in all of these sort of instances that I looked at, you know, the big thing when there's any kind of traumatic social event, people's first instinct is sort of like to hunker down, lock down, stay home. And then they want to come out and, and become an active part of society again. And that is, is the return to normalcy. We keep hearing that word, right? Normal normalcy. Same thing again, after nine 11, after some of these incidents and that to me, when you can go to a stadium and sit next to 50,000 other people who are strangers and give high fives without worrying about getting sick. That's truly, you know, when life is back to normal. And I think you need to have people go to the stadiums to sort of establish that, but you don't need to go to the stadium yourself. Most people watch sports on TV. And that's like the really unique thing about sports is when you watch it on TV, you feel like you're there because, you know, people think, that they're watching a football game or a baseball game, but what they're really watching is an arena full of fans and spectators and players in a way that you don't get when you watch a movie on TV, you know you're alone. So, you know, to to have people see those 50,000 people with the jerseys on screaming and yelling and feel like part of the crowd, those people have to be at the game, but everyone benefits, even the people who don't go to the game. So when, when we were in the times where, where no one was at games and they were playing in empty arenas and empty stadiums, do you think fandom changed at all during those times? Again, I know you mentioned there, you know, when you're watching from TV, you're getting that full experience. You're getting the jerseys in the crowd. You're getting the cheers and everything. How do you think that experience changed when there weren't those people in the stands to watch? Yeah, I mean, it definitely did change because I think Early on when sports came back, it was like, you know, having sports without fans was better than nothing. Yeah. So it was good uh, because people, again, needed the entertainment and distraction. But a big part of what gives us these positive mental benefits that psychologists have identified with sports fans is a feeling of belonging to a community, you know, being part of a group. And that's what was really lost without those people in the stands. You were still enjoying watching baseball. I mean, you know, or the NBA, you know, which was one of the first to come back um, and filling your time. But it wasn't the same being part of something that you get when you're watching sports in normal times. Yeah. And I think one thing that was interesting to me was, you know, just as someone who, who uses social media and seeing that community you know, turn more, you know, onto the computer in, in whether it's Twitter, fan groups, things like that, those things I, I feel like took off a bit more than they already were during this, during that time. Cause I think people were looking for that sense of belonging that you talk about there. Yeah. And one of the things I have a chapter in my book on fantasy sports yep. and, you know, it's been really fast growing uh, as of the last sort of solid numbers, about almost 60 million people in the U S and Canada participate. 
And it's another uh, a social event. I mean, there's some people who just play DraftKings and stuff to try to make money. But yeah. for a lot of people, it's it's a social, it's its own form of sort of social media. You have your college group or your work group and you keep in touch. And, and that was one benefit, even without the fans, as soon as games return, fantasy sports doesn't care whether there's people in the stands or not. So that was sort of a, a bonus for those people who participate. In terms of that sense of belonging, I think one thing that's special to the United States compared to the rest of the world is the emphasis we place on, on college sports here. I, I think that's a big thing. Were you able to dive into, you know, seeing any differences between fandoms, say, at the collegiate level versus professional sports? Well, yeah, and I think you really hit on something a lot of people don't recognize, you know, is that the rest of the world just doesn't understand the whole entire concept of college <laughs> sports. You know, it's strictly American. And that, you know, people ask me, oh, what's the biggest difference between American sports fans and sports fans everywhere else? And sports fans are the same. The biggest difference is they don't have college sports. Yeah. Um, and I would say, I mean, I, I can't, this is, is my own opinion. I, I don't have data to quantify this, but I, I feel that college sports fans are the most passionate of fans, especially Definitely. football and especially, you know, the kind of Alabama, um, Clemson, you know, the powerhouse traditional teams in uh, NCAA Division One football are the ones who are buying the logo coffins to be buried in. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. In, in terms of, you know, I know we talked about some of the, the healing benefits that come from being a fan in, in sports. Uh, your book also mentions a variety of health benefits, which I, I found interesting, whether it was, you know, especially to your brain and some of the benefits that watching sports and being a fan does to that. Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, they've studied this a lot, what actually goes on in your brain when you watch sports, you know, different imaging way, having people uh, have MRIs while they're watching sports, different ways of measuring it. And they have always had, the, the researchers have always been surprised how active our brains are on sports. And especially if, if it's a sport you've played, like, you know, you played Little League and you watch baseball, your, your mind uh, sort of simulates as if you're playing when you're watching. So it gives a really good workout for your brain. And it's not, this is something that is, is not really exclusive to sports. You can get mm -hmm. this in a lot of other ways, but what, what, you know, they have established is that basically exercising your brain, like doing Sudoku every day or doing crossword puzzles, using it, you know, in an analytic intellectual way prevents cognitive decline and is better for you, especially as you age and sports fills that function as well. So you, you can get it in other ways, but not, you know, to me, it's like the equivalent of doing Sudoku every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there are some surprising sort of, uh, I mean, there are some studies that are very on the, the newest edge of studying your muscle activity and neurological activity. And there's some evidence that watching sports from the couch, even when you're not doing anything is like a workout in a sense that watching a sitcom is not, but there's been very, I'm a little skeptical. You know, there's a, there's, that's a very first generation study. Maybe, you know, five years from now, we'll talk more about, Oh my God, that's great. But the, the, uh, the physical benefits of sports really come from participation. Yeah. And surprisingly, a lot of that is driven by, by sports on TV. There's a lot of instances where people would not have taken up a sport or done any activity until they watched it on TV. And if that can transform people from the couch to going out and working out, that's a great thing. Yeah, well, if, if sitting on the couch gives you that workout, you, you said you saw somewhere <laughs> in a study. I'm, I'm going to take it and, and run with it. I'm, uh, I like that stat there. Um, in terms of uh, some of the other 
areas you, you cover in the book. I, I know it, one thing that's really come to the top of the sports world has been this mix of sports and politics and some of those issues. Take us through what you what you wrote about in the book around some of those issues in sports and politics. Well, the first thing I would say is that it's not new. I mean, there, it has been, you know, a big conversation lately, but, you know, the entire spectrum of, of sort of the sports related social progress in America, which, you know, it starts well before Jackie Robinson and includes, you know, highlights like Jesse Owens at the Olympics and Joe Lewis. Um, but really, you know, sort of the, the seminal moment is Jackie Robinson. Right. And, and that, you know, predated what historians consider the start of the civil rights movement and um, was, you know, really fundamental in changing people's perspectives on racism or starting to change it. You know, this is a, a very slow continuum. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. But in all of these aspects, after, after Jackie Robinson and civil rights, women's rights, then LGBTQ rights, and now the social justice movement. And in most of these cases, sports has been ahead of other, you know, popular cultural forms, including government. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's a lot, it's been a lot of change for the better because of sports. And, but what has changed most recently that really has made this issue front and center is the athlete's access to social media. So when I look back at like, again, there's always been activist athletes, um, right. Muhammad Ali, Ali yeah. and John Carlos and Tommy Smith, you know, with their fists up at the Mexico City Games in 1968. But those guys had to rely on a press that did not like them to translate their message and their image to the public and what it meant. Whereas, you know, LeBron James can go out to his however many hundred million Twitter followers or whatever he gets Get his message out there in 10 seconds. Yeah. yeah. And ex exactly the way he wants to convey it. So that's a big change. And that in turn has forced the hand of the leagues and the teams, which always tried to sort of bury their heads in the sand when it came to anything political or, you know, possible conflicts. And they can no longer do that, which is why the NFL is investing a quarter of a billion dollars in fighting systemic racism. And you have this on-field messaging. But to me, when people complain that like sports has gotten too political, I look back to, you know, Joe Lewis being invited to the White House and told by the president that, you know, we need your muscles to beat the Nazis, you know, uh, 80 years ago. And, and all of the White House invites and every major sporting event, you know, presidents, vice presidents, ex-presidents throwing out first pitches, the World Cup, every leader of Europe, you know, goes and makes a showing. Sports and politics have always been linked. And, you know, I look at it like, our last two presidents before Joe Biden, very different men, both sports fans. And you wouldn't tell either of them, yo, you're a politician. You can't be a sports fan. That doesn't go together, right? So I think it's just sort of the flip side. I, I want to dive into something that cracked me up in the book because it's something, you know, I, I think I've I've always somewhat believed in. And you probably have some interesting stories from the research you've done. And that's around superstitions. I mean, I, I, I still blame my mom for breaking up a CC Sabathia no hitter one time. What was it like going through some of the research you did on that in, in finding some of those superstitions and how that connects to fandom? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the, the funniest, I think, part of the book. Because And what's funny is that the people take it seriously, right? They really believe that what seat they sit in or what they eat during the game affects the outcome. And when I uh, talked to the psychologist who conducted really the biggest study of its kind on this, 
he explained to me that, you know, there's two, there's two different things. And one is sort of rituals, which is, oh, I always wear this shirt when I go to the game. Mm-hmm. And that's different from superstition because you're not actually, you do it because it's a habit. So superstition is when the fans actually believe that what they do changes the outcome of the game. So they asked them that very specifically. And in these studies, they said, oh, yes, you know, I eat half a hot dog and then the popcorn chicken and then a frozen yogurt with M&Ms because if I don't, my team will lose. <laughs> and I find that pretty fascinating. And then a lot of, you know, of course, a lot of um, a lot of those uh, superstitions revolve around sex. And I think that's sort of maybe just an excuse right? You know, maybe for the game. Oh, we got, gotta love what people do to to think helps their team win, right? And anything they could do there. Um, one thing, uh, another another part of the book that that I think stood out to me is we, sports have always played such a big role in our culture here, but we're starting to see it. And I know you talk about it surpassing things like religion in terms of social gatherings in, in some of those other networks that have waned. Why do you think sports have been able to stand through that kind of test of time, whereas those other organized groups have kind of started to fall by the wayside a bit? Yeah, I mean, the, the way that people traditionally came together socially were things like bowling leagues or fraternal organizations like the Elks Club or even the workplace. And all of those, I mean, I think, you know, there's different reasons, but a lot of them is competition for our time. Um, a lot of things, I think, you know, like the fraternal organizations, part of it is is people used to just, you know, not spend as much time uh, accommodating their kids mm-hmm. as like taking them to soccer practice and Taekwondo and all the things that they do today, which, you know, take, people just have less time in general, it seems, but they still have time to watch sports because you don't have to go to the game. You can even listen to it on the radio. You can DVR it. You can't DVR your bowling league. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that that's part of, of it, you know, it's not just institutions, it's anything that's time consuming has is sort of um, slipping in popularity. But sports is very much dependent on, you know, it's a real time thing that's on every day. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to access. Right, definitely. I know we talked a little bit about the rituals and superstitions there. And just kind of to, to end here on a fun note, do you have from the research you did, you know, a crazy fan story that didn't involve superstition or ritual? Because I know there are some crazy fan stories that go above and beyond that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of my favorites, I, I did a, a lot of research and a lot of this didn't make it into the book because I just had to cut some stuff. But I did yeah. a lot of research on sports fans and romance, all the <laughs> will you marry me on the Jumbotron? <laughs> and, you know, by my estimate, there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 people in this country who got engaged at stadiums. Um, and a lot of those stories, a lot people don't realize a lot of times that the team sell these packages where the mascot will come to your seat with a dozen roses and a ring and yeah. all kinds of, of, of hoopla around that. I find it fascinating. But I was trying to find the first example of somebody getting engaged at a game since the pandemic began, right? So... <laughs> Uh, there was a Philadelphia Phillies fan who had planned on doing this and then major league baseball returns and announces that they are not going to have any spectators at any regular season games. So what he does is he buys two of those cutouts. Some of the team sold sends him <laughs> pictures of himself and his girlfriend. And in his picture, he's holding a sign that says, will you marry me? 
They pause the cutouts, they put them up at the stadium, and he makes his girlfriend watch the game and stops it when they show them in the crowd. And that's like his virtual stadium proposal. And I thought that was amazing. That is, that is. And I lied. I've got I've got one more question here for you because uh, you know, as we're talking about crazy fans here in Connecticut, UConn basketball is everything, and we've got some crazy fans here. And I know you talk a bit in the book about how being fans tends to lead to giving donations, things of that nature. And I know this year, UConn fans, you know, uh, started this hot sauce challenge where people were taking shots of hot sauce to raise money to send kids to games, you know, in the future. Take us through some of the research you found about, you know, why as fans, we might have been predisposed to doing something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's just, that, again, I think it comes from that sense of belonging to a community. So like the Denver Broncos forever have hosted a blood drive in the summer at Mile High Stadium. And it's the single biggest blood donation event in the state of Colorado every year. And it's just the fans, it's sort of part of their being Broncos fans. They're almost programmed themselves like every year we're going to go and give blood on Broncos blood day. And, but part of it is also um, when I I relate this story about JJ Watt raising uh, an incredible, I forget what it is. It's like $180 million for hurricane relief um, via social media after hurricane Harvey. And he had set out with a goal of raising $200,000. Right. Um, And I talked to um, Jason Gay, who's the sports writer at the wall street journal about it. And he said that in a way, like with the social media and all of the athletes having charities, it's become like its own sporting event. JJ Watt is like, we're at 10 million, we're at 20 million. You know, <laughs> the fans feel like they're participating by giving. So yeah. it kind of, you know, and in the old days, you would have had to like write a check and mail it someplace. <laughs> so, so we've seen giving, healing, some of the physical health events uh, or benefits to, uh, to sports fandom. So the end of the day someone gives you some uh some trouble about being a sports fan you know make sure you check out larry's book here again fans how watching sports makes us happier healthier more understanding you've got your excuses all all lined up in there for why it's good to be a sports fan so larry thanks so much for coming on today appreciate it it was a pleasure thanks thanks for listening to the connecticut scoreboard podcast with jared cutler if you like the show and want to know more check out the podcast on twitter at ct scoreboard pod the host at Jared Cutler, and find us on Facebook at the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast. Finally, if you enjoy what you're listening to, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.